You're in the water loop. Waterloop is made possible in part by grants from Springpoint Partners and the Walton Family Foundation. Waterloop. Hey, this is Travis with Waterloop. I want to tell you a story about High Sierra Showerheads, who I'm proud to have as a sponsor of this podcast, particularly because they make incredibly water-efficient showerheads. I've talked with owner David Malcolm about growing up in California, learning about the importance of water and energy efficiency from his father. David has been designing high-efficiency nozzles for agriculture and golf courses for the past 30 years. The golf course people actually came to him wanting a nozzle that produced a uniform spray but was water-efficient. So David went in and designed a nozzle that explodes a low-pressure stream of water into a shower of large, powerful droplets. David actually thought, this would make a great showerhead. And that's how High Sierra Showerheads was born. And nobody has their nozzle technology. It's patented, and you get a great shower while saving water. Use promo code LOOP20 for 20% off at HighSierraShowerheads.com. You're in the Waterloop. Welcome to Waterloop. This is Travis. Joined for this episode by Dr. Scott Hagen. He is a professor at Louisiana State University. He's also the director of the Center for Coastal Resiliency at LSU. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity to share some thoughts. Uh, talking about our coasts and resiliency, obviously, uh, as timely as ever right now with the changes that are underway. As I was doing some some research on on your work and your your focus areas, I came across this term, coastal land margin. I think I can I can understand what that is, but could you explain that? And make sure I'm I'm interpreting it correctly, and and the audience is as well. We've started using oh, probably 10 years ago, this idea of trying to identify the coastal land margin. And and this is extending out from the shoreline into the Gulf of Mexico or the Atlantic Ocean or whatever body of water exists along the shoreline, extending that out into relatively shallower waters and then going inland with it as well. And one loose definition that you can think of with the coastal land margin is the extent of inundation that you might receive from hurricane storm surge. How far that surge might potentially penetrate inland. And we're actually evolving that as well because some of our more recent work is getting into aspects of compound flooding. The realization that When we have floods along the coast, especially where we have very low-lying topography, we have an interaction between the freshwater flows, the rainfall, and the runoff, and the flow of the rivers with the tides, and of course with hurricane storm surge. And taking those different processes, overland flows with ocean-generated hurricane storm surge and and tides, that concept of the coastal land margin sometimes expands in in our areas of interest. So this coastal land margin, 
it's uh, it's trying to take a more holistic and more accurate look at what the coast is rather than that that much more narrower here is where the land meets meets the water it's you've got to consider the bigger picture if you will is that is that a fair simple way to say it it really is and a recognition that that coastal land margin can be affected by human intervention when we build infrastructures when we build levees when we build dikes around rivers when when we evolve the the land, the coastal land margin, because of what we're doing from an engineering point of view, and and what we're doing as we're living with the nature. The past few decades, uh, you know, we've had just all of these storms, and we've learned more and seen an acceleration of sea level rise, and there's a, you know a continued development and growth in our right up to our coasts. Um, so how has this coastal land margin area been impacted by these these types of events and changes of the past, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 years? And even maybe a little bit longer, right? Mm-hmm. And, and particularly, though, in the last few decades, we've, we've seen the populations in the coastal counties skyrocket. And we've seen the world population as a whole grow, right? We've seen the population of the United States up until this last year continue to balloon, but even more so on a global basis. And so we're putting more people on the coastal land margin. We're putting more people sometimes maybe where we know a little bit better than than what we're doing in practice in, in terms of trying to put people in in locations that we know have a higher probability of of having flooding. And so in essence, we're putting people in harm's way and it complicates the engineering of solutions to deal with that. And it, it complicates that delicate balance that we have at the coastal land margin between the coupled natural and human system. What lessons are we learning? Um, yeah, I guess there's a couple of different ways to look at that. You, as a as a researcher and scientist and professor, are, and and your colleagues are learning a tremendous amount. I'd love to hear about that side. The other side I think of is like from a practical standpoint, society. <laughs> you know, how are are we actually learning any lessons? Are we actually making any changes from what we're seeing in this area. So maybe kind of the science side first, if you could expand on on what lessons we're learning about that coastal land margin, especially coming from the impacts that we've just talked about. And at the bottom of this slide, you see a graphic that is attempting to represent this coastal land margin. Mm. And at the northern extent of the colored portion of it, it's about, it's approximately the 10 meter contour or somewhere around 30, uh, 32 and a half feet, if you will. And it goes out into the Gulf of Mexico and it's covering Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and a large portion of the Florida panhandle. And so this is really what I'm referring to when I talk about the coastal land margin in the case of the Northern Gulf of Mexico. What has come about since I began 
with my PhD dissertation research, or really when I was an undergraduate and I had a research experience, the advent of large-scale tide and hurricane storm surge models was just beginning. And at that time, some 25 to 30 years ago, the best that we could hope for is, is with, with our computing capabilities is that we could build a model that maybe would have 25, 30, 40, maybe 50,000 computational points mm. that would describe whatever region we were interested in calculating the tides and hurricane storm surge over. And if we build a model that would describe like this upper left graphic, this large scale region of the Atlantic Ocean, the Gulf of Mexico and the Caribbean Sea, it would be limited in its ability to describe the features that were associated. It would be limited in its ability to even include that coastal land margin. It really would only go up to the shore. And one of the most important advents and advances that we've seen in our numerical modeling capabilities is, is this ability to perform performance parallel computations. Hmm. So what, what we're doing, I'll, I'll describe that with the next slide a little bit more, but what we're able to do now is we're able to describe that flow up onto the coastal land margin in the full extent of hurricane storm surge. And we're able to describe features like I show here in Pascagoula, Mississippi, and represent those with a high definition of detail in our tide and hurricane storm surge models. So with the advent of the supercomputers and particularly the high performance parallel computing technology, mm. we're able to throw more description at the earth and we're able to describe how water flows over and up into the estuaries and up the rivers and down the rivers and out of the banks and all of, all of the flooding characteristics associated with these types of flows, we're able to describe that more definitively. And what I have seen in the last couple of decades is our uncertainty in these types of calculations, not just because of the numerical capabilities, but also because of the remote sensing capabilities and the introduction of laser technology into measuring the land surface. So LIDAR being brought into the equation and being able to describe the land surface more robustly. When we do all of this and we put this all together in our numerical modeling technology, what we have done is to decrease the uncertainty band to the point where what used to be almost considered noise in the calculations can now be refined enough to understand it. So processes like waves that are breaking near shore and contributing to the increase in the hurricane storm surge can now be 
modeled and in, in, in included in the calculations. Hmm. Processes like rainfall during the hurricane event can actually be included in the process. And what used to be part of the uncertainty band is now becoming part of what we're able to describe and what we're able to better understand so that we're getting an even more complete picture of the entire tide and hurricane storm surge process. And that's important. That's really important if we want to understand what's happening at the coastal land margin. When you look at that lower right graphic of Pascagoula, Mississippi, Topobathy, or topography and bathymetry, bathymetry, of course, meaning the water depths, and you see that green area on the right, which is the Grand Bay Marsh, and our ability to describe tidal creeks that run through it, so that we can not only describe extreme events like hurricane storm surge, we can describe the process of the daily flooding and ebbing of the tide. So as that marsh gets inundated, and how that inundation, that daily inundation, it's daily in the northern Gulf of Mexico because of the nature of the tides in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, of course, on the East Coast, it's twice daily, right, where we have a semi-diurnal tide, but I, I never, I, I, I never real, I didn't know that. I, that's, I had no idea that there was only the, the once a day tide, if you will, in the Gulf of Mexico. Wow. For predominantly in the Gulf of Mexico, it's it's largely a diurnal response or a daily response with the tides. And we're able with models like these to then be able to describe, again, with a very high definition, that flooding and ebbing, that daily overtopping of the marsh surface and then the recession off of that marsh surface in that interaction with the vegetation so that we can develop more robust ecological models. Mm. Now, how we do all of this is again with parallel technology. And, and the way to think about that is, you know, if, if you've got a lot of numbers to add up, if you do it by yourself, it's going to take a long time. If, if you give, each of the kids in the classroom, a set of numbers to add up. And then in the end, you add up what they have added up, the subparts of, of the total number to be added. Then you can do the whole addition quicker. And the same analogy is present with our parallel approach. So we break the, the problem down into subdomains and each of these different colors, whether it's a blue or a green or a yellow or an orange, they're representing a subdomain within our larger domain. And each of these is assigned to its own high performance computing processor. And every time step making a calculation, that subprocessor makes its calculation and then, com then communicates it to its neighbors so that we're able to build models like this that may have millions of com computational nodes 
and we're able to turn those models around in, in a matter of hours to, to do many simulations in, in just a matter of hours where when I started out, we worked with a model that was similar to the one that is in the upper left here. And my master's student built the model and we could only run it on a single processor. Hmm. And it literally took him between two and three months to make a single simulation. And in the end, if it hadn't all gone right, he wouldn't have graduated. <laughs> now we can do that same simulation in a matter of seconds. Wow. It's, it's amazing. Being able to put this all together, being able to calculate floods as, as they are associated with the coastal land margin, if you look at the lower right, what we're able to do then is we're able to combine that with again, rainfall and runoff and, and the river flows and how they interact with the coastal processes. And we can better define our flood hazard zones, mm -hmm. these areas where we have compound flooding. And you see the little gold part that is uh, surrounding Lake Moripaw. This is a transition zone. This is where we're transitioning from a coastally dominated flow to a hydrologically dominated flow or a rainfall runoff dominated flow. And on the lower left, you can appreciate why this is important with respect to present day assessment of coastal marshes and future assessment of coastal marshes. Because if we can describe that flow and then maybe even work into it some level of salinity transport and we have a good vegetation-based model to, to pair with it, we can describe how a salt marsh is going to evolve under different levels of sea level rise. We can begin to understand what levels of accretion or buildup of the organic and inorganic materials on the marsh surface we can begin to understand how well those are going to keep up with future rates of sea level rise. And then you see the browning of the vegetation and, and how critical that is in the sense of having that saline water being transported further in on the coastal land margin and beginning to pollute, if you will, or, or to degrade freshwater species. And unfortunately, we're seeing that today, especially along the East Coast, sometimes miles away from, from the shoreline, where underground salinity transport is beginning to impact freshwater forests. Hmm. The, uh, so, the, the ghost forests, right? No, we, that's right. Yeah, yeah. That's right. I've even heard about some... Um, you know, farms that are coastal farms, if you will, where they've had changes in the salinity of their soil and it's impacting crops. I, I read a story about that uh, a few years ago, I think. Something in the eastern, eastern North Carolina, they were talking about that. So, so. And, and this has been a challenge in Louisiana for some time, simply with hurricane storm surge inundation of rice farms. Mm. And it's not 
anything necessarily to do with sea level rise. It's something that's happening in the present and has happened in the, in the recent historical past where you have a huge storm surge inundation that overtops the, the small levees that surround a, a rice farm and that fresh water that's supposed to be contained where the rice paddies are growing gets salinated. Mm. And then the soil can be corrupted as a result of, of that process. Sure. And I was really curious about who uses this. It sounds like, uh, especially when it comes to that Gulf region, you've got a lot of, of interest, a lot of projects involving federal agencies. You've mentioned some of them. Uh, you, the states are very concerned, I guess, when it comes to preparing for flooding and, and other coastal resilience issues. Uh, even municipalities maybe along the coast take a look at some of these models. And um, yeah, just curious about that, that whole end of users. Yes, and, and at the very beginning, um, actually a couple of decades ago, NOAA was a big supporter of mine, and, and this was through their river forecast centers, in particular the one south of Atlanta in Peachtree City. I did work with them on better understanding of how rivers interact with, with tides and, and what that means with respect to flooding. And it, and it really laid the ground for a lot of the work that I did and expanded. Mm -hmm. And each little project led to a bigger one. And, and finally, you end up with something that is substantial enough to support a PhD student. Mm -hmm. And that interaction with the river forecast centers was fundamentally important. And about 15 years ago, I had a turning point in my career where I landed a project with FEMA and we developed the coastal inundation models that are used in the northern Gulf of Mexico for flood insurance studies. And that really became the backbone of a lot of this work. It allowed me to take the technology that my group had developed in terms of the capability to describe the features of the coastal land margin to an actual modeling application and to influence how the floodplains are, are actually assessed over a large expanse of the coast. And so we've been also been involved in East Coast studies like that. We weren't the lead, but we were contributing as well as the West Coast. And then this, this all led to the study with NOAA and the effects of sea level rise and, and the work that we've done. We like to think that we are major contributors to a paradigm shift in the sense of going away from a bathtub modeling approach where you assume that the sea level is going to rise, but there's no dynamic response at the coast to a more complete coastal dynamics of sea level rise where you can actually see the coastal land margin changing, including the vegetation and including the surface itself and, and the near shore and erosion of the near shore and, and building that all with respect to the dunes and the barrier islands, et cetera, into the modeling approaches has been a real major shift in the paradigm of how sea level rise is assessed over this coastal land margin. Mm. And all of that has 
been supported by NOAA and in the process, we've worked very closely and carefully with the natural estuarine research reserves in the Northern Gulf, in particular in Apalachicola and in Weeks Bay and in Grand Bay. And they've been tremendous partners to taking the research that we have developed and working with the community and helping them to understand what this means and, and how this can help with future planning. If you understand how the marsh will respond with no intervention, then you can begin to think about how you might be able to intervene and protect it from being lost or allow it to migrate upland so that in some cases, you can actually increase the footprint that the marsh has by allowing it to move further inland with, with sea level rise. Or you may be able to consider thin layer placement of dredging materials on the marsh surface so that you can increase the rise of the marsh surface to correspond with the sea level rise and lengthen its lifespan in, in that sense. And then much of the work that we're doing of late and that a lot of people are, are getting more and more involved with is working with natural and nature-based features. And the U.S. Army Corps has one of the world's leading programs in engineering with nature, a program that's led by Todd Bridges. And that's a really important aspect of how we can prolong our ability to live with nature at the coastal land margin, as opposed to simply engineering away from nature. Mm. Yeah. Well, sea level rise isn't good news, but it's encouraging that there's some more ability to adapt than we may have thought, right? This idea of that marshes can move inland and go with the water and everything. That's, that's great. Um, have we learned anything different about how sea level rise is actually taking place because of this modeling? So one of the thing, one of the fundamental things that we've learned is again, how dynamic that coast is. And you can't simply take today's extent of hurricane storm surge inundation and raise it by whatever the sea level rise is and say, okay, that's what we're gonna have in the future. That's not true even if you don't evolve the coastal land margin like I'm showing in this cartoon animation. That's not true because when you raise the sea level, then all of a sudden, maybe this roadway over here or this levee over there or this riverbank up the middle is now able to be overtopped and a volume of water is able to flow where it couldn't before. And so the response that we get to the coupled hurricane storm surge and sea level rise process is a, what we call a highly nonlinear response. It's not additive. In, in fact, in some areas, it increases by factors greater than 
the sea level rise. And in other areas, the increase is actually less than the sea level rise. And the only way that we can understand that is to model the, the full system. Hmm. Yeah. So that understanding of the nonlinearity of the response is very critical. And that's true within the marsh systems as well. Just because I know the tidal datum or the tidal frame, that is, what is the lowest low water level that I'll have near the coast and what is the highest high water level that I'll have near the coast. And so what's in between those we can think of as the tidal frame. Just because I know that at the coast doesn't mean that I understand how that flow is exhibited through the marsh system. And our modeling technology has helped us to better understand that and to recognize that, again, the tides flowing through the, the tidal creeks and up onto the surface have a very nonlinear response. It's not an additive response, and, and we have the capability to describe that. In terms of the biological models, just tremendous progress has been made by people like Jim Morris with, with his uh, salt marsh work and the marsh equilibrium model and my colleague here at LSU, Robert Twilley, and particularly the work that he's done on mangroves over his career, but also with respect to salt marshes. The understanding that they have with the current system of the ecology and how that ecology responds to sea level rise has improved dramatically. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> so with your incredible body of knowledge here, with, with this modeling tool at your disposal, um, there's a lot, again, there's a lot of attention being paid to coastal resilience now from the federal, state, local levels. Um, are there any policy changes, management decisions that you could see uh, that, that you would wave your magic wand and, and have take place based on all this information you have? You know, what is, what is this screaming out to, to, to have happen, <laughs> everything that's being learned here? Well, you know, you're asking me a challenging question. Hmm. And challenging because it's political in nature. Uh -huh. in, in a sense, challenging because we have many, many different stakeholders. You know, when, when we're thinking of the coastal land margin, we have to recognize that the developer is an important player in, in, at the coastal land margin. The natural system and the benefits from which we receive, the benefits that we receive from the natural system are very important as well. And so it is a complicated question. And one of the things that I would, would say is let's step back and let's recognize something about, if you will, the United States of America. What, what do we have that the great countries in Europe don't necessarily have? And what we have are old growth forests, what we have are coastal marshes, we have areas within the United States where they travel over here to go to our national parks. They travel over here to come and visit the Everglades. 
they travel over here to see the marshes along Georgia and South Carolina. They come here because they can visit a natural system that has really not been um, hindered. It, it hasn't had the extreme human footprint that exists in Europe. My point is, they come over here to see our national parks and, and our, our, our ecosystems. We go over there to visit churches. <laughs> now, I love to do that, and I, lo I love the, the experiences that I've had, and, and I have great value in, in those wonderful churches that are all across Europe and the food, of course. Yeah. But they come to the U.S., because in the U.S. we have these old growth forests and we have these national parks. We have all of this. And so you're asking me what I would do if, if uh, I actually had a say in all of this. I'd try to recognize where can we preserve this the longest? Where are there expanses of salt marshes along the coast that that can be enhanced and that we can keep around for at least a couple more generations so that your children, your children's children can appreciate them so that the natural fisheries that have been so beneficial to us can continue. Where can we identify? And, and that's not an easy thing to answer. Let's try to identify where are we putting people in harm's way and let's not do that. And so the U.S. Army Corps has studies that, that they do on coastal resilience and we've had some contribution to them. And they're very critical studies because they help us to understand areas that we shouldn't be developing in and maybe some areas where we can increase the development because the likelihood of, of massive flooding is less. I think we need to take, we're at, we're, we're at a point in time where we really need to take a big picture approach to this. And what we don't want to have, at least what I don't want to have, and, I, and I'm an engineer, okay? I'm a coastal engineer. And, you know, my, my, my uh, career path, my colleagues, the consultants out there that are coastal engineers, they can do a lot of work around the coast. And, and if you want us to build a levee, if you want us to keep the water out and that's all you want, we can do it. You just got to throw the money at it. But give us more of a challenge and ask us. How can we do this so that we can better live with nature? How can we do this so that we can prolong the natural system? Because I don't know about you, but I don't want to live in a country that when you go to the coast, you just have an armored coast everywhere. Yeah, no. And there are going to be places that have to be like that, where we have large population centers. That is a reality, but they don't all have to be like that. Sure. 
Last thing I wanted to ask you, Scott, is, you know, you've talked about the incredible leaps in, in the model because of just the improvement of technology, right? We've had this incredible exponential growth in our, in our ability to, in resolution and computing power and so forth, and it's continuing to, to grow. Um, with, with that, with knowing that that's happening, where do you see this, you know, this modeling going, uh, you know, over the next several years, three, four, five years, um, do you, do you see just, just continued improvement in resolution and ability to, to learn about what's going on? Do you see uh, areas where you're hoping the technology can improve and allow you to do X, Y, and Z? Curious about all that. So the first thing is we still need to have more resolution or we can still afford to have more resolutions so that we can better understand the flow processes. So even this Northern Gulf of Mexico, where I show you a five and a half million computational point model, we're still only going down to about 15 meters in order to describe the Gulf Intracoastal Waterway and other features like that. But when we go away from it, we're expanding out to 50, 60, 70, 80, maybe 100 meter elements and, and then growing from that as we go further upland. So, so we still can use more compute power, more advancements in, in those algorithms, etc. What we also have an interest in as a scientific community and what we have a need for in the United States, as is exemplified by Hurricane Harvey, by Hurricane Laura, by Hurricane Michael, by the uh, hurricane along the uh, East Coast that impacted North Carolina escapes me at the moment. F F we, had, we had Florence dump uh, 30 something That's inches right. on, on me here in Wilmington, North Carolina. <laughs> That's right. That's the one I was thinking. Thank you. Yeah. And, and we have these types of events that are compound flooding events. And so I see in the next three to five, probably realistically, it's, it's going to be 10 years before we have comprehensive technology that, that can describe this on a large scale, but the ability to describe compound flooding right now, when you have that Hurricane Florence and let's say you have uh, a hog pond that's near the river and the river rises because of runoff and, and hurricane storm surge and God forbid the levee of that hog pond breaks and all of that sewage gets into the freshwater body, we don't have the capacity to model that on a large scale today, but we're developing it. And, and, and I think our, our future scientists are, are going to have that. Mm. That'll really be helpful for communities and, and letting them know, hey, here, there, here's a concern, a particular specific concern that you get from that greater resolution and granularity there. Um, well, Scott, I really appreciate your time. Um, I just got to have a have a doctorate level class in this stuff so I, I appreciate the the opportunity great info thank you so much thank you for the opportunity Waterloo.
thanks everyone for listening to today's episode. A special thanks to Waterloop supporters, Spring Point Partners, and the Walton Family Foundation. The Waterloop Podcast is sponsored by High Sierra Showerheads, the smart, stylish way to save energy, water, and money while enjoying a powerful shower. Use promo code LOOP20 for 20% off at highsierrashowerheads.com. If you like Waterloop, please subscribe to the YouTube channel or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on social media and visit waterloop.org to sign up for updates. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop.